I think motherhood is a strength. I think now with more women leaders, we are showing that the ability to multitask and balance are all skills that make us even more exceptional at our job. Welcome to Work Like a Mother, sharing real conversations with inspiring women juggling work, life, and motherhood. I'm Bridget Garsh, co-founder of Neighbor Schools, and today I'm thrilled to chat with Suffolk District Attorney Rachel Rollins. DA Rollins is Boston's top law enforcement official in Suffolk County. She is the first woman to be elected to the role and the first woman of color ever to serve as a Massachusetts District Attorney. She's a social justice warrior and has paved the way for many by being the first woman or first person of color to hold many of her prior positions. She's a proud and passionate mom and auntie to three girls. Welcome, DA Rollins. We are absolutely thrilled to have you join us today. Thank you so much. Of course. I'm excited about this. I know this is going to be a hard question because you've had such an impressive career but can you give us some of the highlights in just a few minutes? Sure. I, you know, not only because this show is about um, work like a mother, but I have said many, many times my most um, proud accomplishment is I'm a mom. And I think in this role as district attorney and somebody who, unfortunately sees people often on the worst day of their life. Either they've been accused of doing something or they've gotten really terrible news about a loved one being harmed or they've been harmed themselves. Just how important it is for us to create and raise good, kind people um, and to love and to be supportive if we are capable of doing so. So I'd say that. And then other real um, accomplishments for me are, you know, my job is amazing, right? I ran for office for the first time at 47 years old. I had never run for office before and was very fortunate to win my primary and general. And now I'm an elected official. I'm the chief law enforcement officer in Suffolk County, which is Boston, Chelsea, Winthrop, and Revere. We've implemented some amazing policies that are first in the nation. And um, we are leading the way not only in Massachusetts, but in many ways across the country. So we're the first state in the entire United States that sued ICE and won. They are no longer allowed to come into courthouses and civilly arrest people in and around courthouses. I created the first in the nation discharge integrity team, which many of you, when you see the horrific uh, video of Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd, mm-hmm. usually the police investigate the police when they harm. Um, and many DAs have been complicit in willfully looking the other way and not investigating police or prosecuting them when they commit crimes like murder. Um, we set up something in Suffolk County where I have four individuals that don't work in my office. I have a community person, a criminal defense lawyer, a retired judge, and an active member of law enforcement. And I'm the fifth member. We don't even meet in my office and we review every discharge case from all six of my police departments uh, that I'm responsible for. So it is giving the community a voice. It is being more transparent. So we're excited. We've done some really cool things and, and more is to come. Wow. And I, I love that you highlighted your role as mom, 
And that was the first thing that you mentioned, especially in that incredibly impressive list. Where were you working when you had your daughter? So my daughter is 16. I was working at a law firm, a very large law firm in Boston um, called Bingham McCutcheon. It is now a law firm called Morgan Lewis. And I remember it was very different back then, you know, 17 years ago, almost Mm -hmm. 2004, she was born in January. So all of 2003, um, many women that were partners at the law firm would not say that they were pregnant. Um, It was like those horrible, you know, sitcoms where everyone's sort of standing behind a big bureau to try to pretend they aren't pregnant when Kerry Washington and Scandal was like standing behind things when she's pregnant with both of her kids. Um, Yeah, I remember vividly, there were not many female partners at the firm. Mm -hmm. And when they were pregnant, they were hiding it. Um, What I love is now, I think motherhood is a strength. I think now with more women leaders, we are showing that the ability to multitask and balance as, as hard as we try, our lives are all skills that make us even more exceptional at our job. Um, I am the mother of one, but I'm also the guardian, uh, kinship foster parent of my two nieces that are now 11 and seven, but I got them when they were two and uh, six. And so you know, I have had DCF, uh, Department of Children and Families, in my life. Um, I'm the oldest of five children, and I have some siblings that are still, you know, some people take a straight path. Other people have a windy path um, and go forward and backwards and sideways. And so I'm supportive of my siblings, but I've stood up and watched their, uh, and, and, you know, been a mom, but I'm called auntie, for their two children. Um, so again, I think being a mom, it is either you know, um, you have either, you know, given birth to this child or you have chosen to love a child, um, whether that's through adoption or whether that's through fostering. Um, but it's all really, really important. Um, so I was at a big firm. Um, I came back to work and, uh, like most women at the time was of course, you know, docked the time that I took for my maternity leave I find it hilarious that when men take paternity leave, they are looked at as like American heroes, right? Right. Because you spent some time, right? Exactly. Meanwhile, we're looked at as like, you're costing us money and, you know, we didn't hire you to go have kids. Um, My hope is that's slowly changing, but um, I'll be honest with you, uh, back 17 years ago, it was hard. Yeah, there's my my mother-in-law was actually one of the first female partners at Bingham. And it reminds me. What is me, her name? Susan Garsh. Susan Garsh. She went on to become a superior court judge. Nice. I didn't know any of that. That's exciting. I get to talk to her. Um, <laughs> she has a lot of information for me, I'm sure. But yeah, it's tough being a first, right? Yeah. I'm sure it was really hard. I mean, you should be so proud of her because smashing glass ceilings and kicking down cement doors is hard. Um, but she has paved the way for many after her, certainly at that firm and then on the bench even as well. And she's such an inspiration to me on a, on a daily basis. Excellent. Now, 
how did you decide to run for public office? Can you tell us a little bit about that process and how you were able to juggle family during that really intense time? I back in goodness. So that would have been 2017 or so um, was um, at a, I think a crossroads in my life. I had, you know, it has a good happy ending, but I had um, just left my job as the chief legal counsel of Massport in about 2015. I had done this amazing program at Harvard Business School for like six, seven months, um, where it's it's almost like a baby uh, MBA, right? It's for executives, not for super young people that have never had a job before. It's for you know, seasoned individuals that need a little more refinement regarding the finance and um, auditing and all the other intricacies of business. And I finished that program. I was like, oh my God, I cannot wait to like change the world. And I was ready, rip roaring to go, didn't know what I was going to do and had a routine mammogram and they um, found something. And then I had to have another one and then a biopsy and then you know, another biopsy and then a meeting with my doctor. And I was told I had um, in certain places stage zero, which is obviously um, you don't want any at all, but stage zero is, is better uh, and stage one elsewhere. But because it was in over 20% of my breast, my left breast, they were going to have to um, conduct a mastectomy of my left breast. And I remember being like, what? Like I had never broken a bone in my body, you know, knock on wood. I'd been healthy my whole life. Um, and this just, you know, hit me, you know, like, like most situations when people have cancer. And I took a breath and I said, I want you to, I'm getting a double mastectomy. Uh, I want, you know, I hope this is a kid friendly show or not PG 13, but I said, I want like pornography quality breasts at the end of this. I want them facing like up and backwards or directly at the ceiling and like beautiful, but we are going to get through this and I'm going to do everything you tell me to. And I'm going to remain as positive as I can, because when you think about it, Bridget, like we, we have how fortunate am I that I got diagnosed in Massachusetts, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm in Boston. I have Mass General. I have Dana-Farber. I mean, we have Brigham. We have all of these places yeah. where people from around the world fly to get our health care. And so it was a kick in the gut. I was um, very scared and, uh, you know, ultimately had a double mastectomy and several other surgeries afterward, but did everything they said. And I can happily say that I'm cancer-free now. I'm on tamoxifen, not for the rest of my life, but for a while. Um, but, you know, for me, that moment of having to go through a real crisis, not like at a law firm where, you know, we want to file this at five and we filed it at 5.05, right? Okay we're sorry, right? But, you know, did anyone die? Um, no. All right, great. These are, and as moms, we recognize, I think as well, what is a real crisis and what is a fake crisis? So having had to speak to my daughter at the time, um, June 16th, uh, 2016 was the day I found out I was diagnosed. And having to tell my daughter, um, who was 12 at the time, you know, um, 
that I had cancer and answering all of her questions, one of which is, are you going to die? And I said, of course, I, I hope not. But, you know, the night before my surgery, I remember writing her a letter, just telling her how much I loved her and thinking, what if this was the last time I got to speak to her? So just all of that happened. It took me 18 to, you know, 24 months to, um, about 18 or 20 months to get well again. And what is so beautiful is my daughter saw me from that day, mm-hmm. all of my surgeries, all of my tubes and drains, all of my medication, all of my doctor's appointments, lying on a couch and wondering if I was going to live or die to one day getting up and starting to work again and looking at her and saying, I'm going to run for office and I'm going to be the first woman to ever be DA in Boston. And the first first woman of color to ever be DA in Massachusetts. And we're going to change the criminal legal system and have her look at me and say like, okay, you know, and then we did. Right. And so what's great is that sort of journey, I think has shown me um, just perseverance and that you are never defined by the moment you find yourself in. Usually we say that about bad moments, but I don't want people to get too cocky either because I'll tell you, things are good sometimes and then life, you know, there are ebbs and flows and what we can't do is get too high or too low because we have to believe um, that as we continue to make the best choices we can and to be as kind and decent and loving and honest as we can be, um, that things are going to turn around again in a, in a more positive way. So I will end by saying, you know, some of my proudest moments right now um, w- is looking back at why I ran. You know, we, we can talk about the moment we find ourselves in in the United States with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and, oh my God, Tony McDade and Elijah uh, McClain. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Rashad Brooks. Many communities knew about this before the rest of the you know world caught up, right? I like to remind people whether you agree with Colin Kaepernick or not, this is why Colin Kaepernick took a knee. He tried to do this peacefully and quietly, and now all the protests and violence and outrage that we see, and people are saying, you guys, you know, you need to stop this. And there are communities that say, but when we ask you nicely or quietly, you don't listen. And then we raise our voice and you don't listen. And then we start yelling and you don't listen. And the only time you listen is when we burn buildings or break things. And yes, we hold people accountable for that. But I like reminding you, buildings have insurance. Glass can be fixed. Lives have been stolen and, and, and ended. So we have to be better at making sure we're having tough conversations, um, but admitting that there are communities that are justifiably just enraged right now as a result of what they've had to endure. Um, So I ran because I knew about the George Floyds um, and others. They were just Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice, right? Or Sandra Bland. Uh, They were the previous iteration of where we find ourselves. And sadly, this goes back centuries, right? So um, that's why I said, you know, we don't have enough women in leadership. We don't have enough women of color in leadership. And my lived experience is very different than the other people that have had the role. So that is why I ran. I you know, it is by far the best job I've ever had in my life. It is also the hardest job I've ever had in my life. You know, it's funny. You think as you get older, you should be working 
less a little bit, right? You don't have to work as hard, I hope. Not that you're letting it coast, but you put in all the work as a young associate lawyer so that you become a partner, so then you have associates working for you and getting you all the work. But I'm still working incredibly hard, but it is just such an honor to have this job and the work is worth it. You touched on um, so many different things in what you were saying right now. Many of them are difficult. Um, This is such a difficult time for the country. You seem so hopeful. And as moms, I think it can be very hard when you need to present that you need to, to sort of shut off your own fear or you need to present that hopeful face for our children. How do you find moments of hope and inspiration to fuel you? And how do you convey that to your children? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is hard. So having a 7, 11, and 16-year-old, the words we use for each are different, right? And um, But, you know, I think being a mom and being a CEO are very similar, right? I have, you know... I only have one child per se, but I've been the mom of three, right? Even though they call me auntie for five years. And so I have a newfound respect for my mom, who's the oldest of five, and her mom, who unfortunately um, passed away a while ago, who was the mother of 11, all with her husband. And all 11 of them, my, my mom and her 10 brothers and sisters graduated from college and are doing well now. But I look at my senior executive staff and I'm like, oh my God, it's like having children, right? Like everyone's jockeying for my attention, um, you know, and they're each different, right? They each need to be motivated in different ways, reprimanded in different ways. Um, So I think those are some real skills that I got as a result of not just being a mom of one, but these sort of crisis situations that we end up hopefully looking at positives, right? Victoria and Mia have made me a better person. They've made my daughter Peyton um, a better person because we aren't as self-centered as we were, you know, in the past. We've had to um, share and adapt and learn and adjust. So, you know, I'm hopeful, even though I, I need to be very clear, I am exhausted and enraged as well. Uh, but I think as a mom and as a leader, you can show your frustration, um, but you have to motivate and you have to um, persevere, right? In order for your business or industry to continue moving forward. Now, it is completely appropriate for us to pause and to acknowledge and to discuss, you know, the reckoning that might be happening, but crime doesn't stop quite frankly and my employees i'm responsible for the well-being and you know salaries um and mental health quite frankly because they do uh tremendously hard work of of approximately 350 people um so in this global pandemic while double global pandemic right of like covid19 and now the sort of racial reckoning that we are seeing um I need to be somebody who is um, has character and is honest and and is persevering through this and seeing hopefully a light at the end of the tunnel, but also keeping people um, holding people responsible, right? That I'm responsible for and calling out injustice when I see it. So I've been trying as hard as I can to do that, 
Um, and I can tell you that the chiefs of police and colonels and commissioners that I work with every day, there are six of them in Suffolk County uh, that I work with every day, um, all male. Um, and let me see, four of the six are white, uh, two black men. I have called them now together twice since George Floyd to have multiple hour conversations about race, policing, and the black community, right? And no holds barred, nothing is off the table because they've been upset with some of the things they've heard me say. And I've been, you know, deeply troubled by their deafening silence for example, as a result of Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd, right? What would need to happen for you to make a statement saying, we denounce what happened there? If that is not a wake-up call for law enforcement to say, this is everything wrong with who we are, and quite frankly, he is not who we are, right? And, and what I want you to understand, Bridget, is like, all of this is connected to me. So the way I tried to explain it to them is even though you think I'm pointing out that you're doing something wrong by being silent, I am also pointing out that in the George Floyd situation and even Ahmaud Arbery, DAs failed the community as well because DAs didn't charge either at all or quickly. They didn't speak to the community. Um, when the guy down in... Um, in Georgia, I believe, spoke to the community. He said, and the African community, I want you to understand, like this elderly white man doesn't even understand the difference between Africans and African-Americans. Like if you don't have that like second grade level understanding, why are you in this role, right? Mm -hmm. So I've explained all that to them. And then I've said, and when people don't trust the police, those people are my grand jurors and my trial jurors. And the police are normally my biggest witnesses in many of the murder cases I have. So it's all connected. When they think you don't care about the community, they're going to be suspect of you. And then when you are sitting on a witness stand telling them to believe you, they don't. And that results in a not guilty, right? Mm -hmm. So I know those are many, 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 many breadcrumbs, but it all matters, right, together. So we've had some really tough honest, you know, voices raised conversations. But, you know, as, as a mom and as a, a sibling of many, that's when the magic happens, right? Like usually, you know, we are, we are a family. And, and I've said to them, unfortunately, you're stuck with me, right? I'm your DA at least for the next two and a half years. Um, so we can either make this work or it can be really uncomfortable for, you know, however long, the next 700 and whatever number days. Um, but we have really made, I think, significant progress. I'm struck by a number of scenarios you've shared where you are the only woman in the room. How has being a woman impacted the way you see your role? My gender definitely impacts the way that I look at things, um, as does my race, you know, and I, I feel like it is such a wonderful added benefit to be able to be a mom to be able to talk about, even as, forget about the outside world, just as the, the sort of leader of my 350 employees, to be able to say, I'm going crazy. Like I'm homeschooling three children and I, I can't imagine how the rest of you are feeling, right? It has always been fascinating to me that court starts at nine in the morning, but school sometimes, you know, I, I, my niece went to school where school started at 830 
So it is so clear to me that men make all of these decisions and are used to having a woman at home to handle all of the, you know, family business. We need more women in leadership to say like, no, either schools open at eight and work starts at nine 30. So you have enough time. But I just remember all this angst I used to feel as a young lawyer, because I would literally like fling my child out of car to get them into school on time, Tokyo drift into like the parking lot at the federal courthouse, sprint upstairs to be like plopped in a chair at 8.57, right? Sweating and getting ready for the jury to be called in. And it's exhausting, right? You can't do that. And who I am now is, you know, I would say, Your Honor, can we start at 9.30? There are, I myself have childcare responsibilities and um, I'm sure there are members of the jury that do as well. We need bold leadership and people in positions where they can speak about that um, and demand it, right? And if the judge says no, at least he or she, usually he, will be aware that this is an issue if they weren't aware of it in the past. As an elected official, you have a lot of responsibilities on your plate. How do you juggle your work with your family? It is hard, I'll tell you. And, you know, I've been reading some articles showing that with um, women and men staying home in, in marriages uh, between women and men, that women are bearing the brunt more, right, of the childcare work, um, of the sort of responsibility or not feeling this, you know, glee of being able to work from home all the time because they're not only watching their kids more, they might be cleaning up more than their um, you know, husband or partner. So uh, for me, I will say in the beginning, COVID was, um, you know, a, it was obviously terrifying, but, you know, there was a piece where I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to be with my family. I'll be able to spend more time with my family. Um, and then unfortunately, the lines started getting blurred, right? The meetings that wouldn't start till nine or 930 because I wanted to bring my kids to school and spend time with them in the morning and no meetings after let's say 6.30 were, you know, a speaking engagement at seven or 7.30 or can you be there at seven in the morning? And I would keep saying yes, because it's like, oh, well, I don't have to drive. I just have to get dressed and come down to the first floor. But, you know, I'll say uh, for me, three children, two nieces and one daughter that I am responsible for, I am like, homeschooling right now, you know? So I have a rising junior, a rising sixth grader and a rising second grader, all in three different school systems. My daughter is in the independent school league at BBNN. My niece is in the Boston public school, the 11 year old, and the seven year old is in the Cambridge public schools. So with Zooms, um, you know, with all of this like virtual teaching, it's hard. It's really hard to juggle it. Uh, thank goodness my daughter is sort of self-sufficient, the 16-year-old. But, um, you know, and it and remember, it's a privilege to be able to Zoom into my job, right? We've seen now through COVID what we always knew essential workers were police and fire and first responder, EMTs. But now we know they're also teachers, right? And people that work in food uh, service industry or at supermarkets or doing transportation or hospital work. 
Um, and all of them have kids too. So it has been very tough. Um, I do not do as well as I would like to. Um, but what's great is there are times where I can say to my staff, no, that's it. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Like I need to spend some time with my children. And the answer is no. And what's wonderful is as the boss, um, I don't have to ask permission. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that you're finding it challenging to, to juggle both and that you feel like you're not doing it well, because that's so common, I think. And as such an inspirational leader to have you be very open about that um, gives, gives so much perspective, right? Because from the outside world, you look like you are just um, crushing everything and uh -huh. To open up and to really reveal that even you don't feel like you're able to give things your all um, is it's really insightful. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Of course. At the end of every episode, I ask people the same question. And my question to you is, what advice would you give to your pre-mom self? Oh, my God. You know, I'll give you a funny one and then, you know, a real one is my pre-mom self. I would have said, travel more, do everything you can and enjoy yourself because life changes significantly in wonderful and then other ways when you have a child. But um, I think my pre-mom self, you know, I would have been kinder to myself, right? I would have been... Um, I would have told myself it's okay that you don't have all the answers yet, right? And um, it's okay to just be responsible for yourself and to put yourself first. You know, as an oldest child, I think I was always concerned about my younger siblings and other people, um, you know, and I think it's the same thing I deal with now where, you know, it's almost like the giving tree, right? Like at the end, I want to make sure I have something for myself and that's not selfish or, or selfish isn't necessarily a bad word. You know, I will say my daughter has made my life so much better. Um, she really has. She's an amazing um, young person. Uh, and she is honestly um, my, you know, she's a human being on her own, but I feel like my proudest achievement, my most important job is being a parent. And um, it is creating and or raising good, kind, and decent people, right? And showing them love. And there are people we all know that don't, you know, don't have the ability to do that because they've either been harmed um, or experienced some trauma that has altered them or there is some, you know, substance use or mental health um, disorder that they didn't ask for, believe you me. Um, so it's just, you know, I think being a mom has made me a lot better as a person. I wanted to ask you, have you seen, there's a meme going around about an alternate ending to the giving tree? <gasps> Tell me, no. I will send it to you. And send it's absolutely it. fantastic. And it's basically that she doesn't give away all of her limbs. She doesn't give away her trunk and because she wants to continue to be able to give and um, take care of herself. So it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, yeah. I'll send you. Tonight, I'll, I'll send it to you on Instagram, but it's fantastic. I can't wait. And thank you so much for, for joining us. It's been a wonderful pleasure being able to chat with you a little. You too. And tell your mother-in-law I said hello. <laughs> I will. Thank Bye -bye. you.
Thanks so much for listening. I'm Bridget Garsh, and this is Work Like a Mother. I'm excited to share another amazing working mama story with you next week. But before I go, I have a quick favor to ask. Please help us spread the word by giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way for more working moms to discover our show. Thanks, and have a great week.